Welcome to this January 2009 E-Cystic Fibrosis Review Podcast. E-Cystic Fibrosis Review is presented by the Johns Hopkins University School of Medicine, the Institute for Johns Hopkins Nursing, and the Postgraduate Institute for Medicine, and is supported by an educational grant from Genentech, Salve Pharmaceuticals, and Novartis Pharmaceuticals. Today's program is a follow-up to our January 2009 newsletter topic, Measurement of Early Lung Disease in Children with Cystic Fibrosis. Our guests are Dr. Stephanie Davis and Jessica Pittman from the Division of Pediatric Pulmonology at the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill. This activity has been developed for clinicians, including physicians, nurses, pharmacists, respiratory therapists, dietitians, and physical therapists caring for patients with issues related to cystic fibrosis. There are no fees or prerequisites for this activity. The accreditation and credit designation statements can be found at the end of this podcast. For additional information about accreditation, Hopkins policies, expiration dates, and to take the post-test to receive credit online, please go to our website, www.ecysticfibrosisreview.org, and click on the January 2009 podcast link. At the conclusion of this audio activity, participants should be able to describe the advantages and disadvantages of early physiologic and structural measurements in the infant and preschooler with CF, Delineate the clinical and research utility of infant and preschool pulmonary function testing in the CF population, and discuss the clinical implications of structural abnormalities in the early CF lung. I'm Bob Busker, editor of E-Cystic Fibrosis Review. On the line we have with us our January issues authors. Dr. Stephanie Davis is Associate Professor of Pediatrics with the Division of Pediatric Pulmonology at the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill. Dr. Jessica Pittman is a Fellow in Pediatric Pulmonology also at the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill. Dr. Davis, Dr. Pittman, welcome to this E-Cystic Fibrosis Review Podcast. Thank you for inviting us to participate. We're excited to be here. Both guests have disclosed that they have no relationships with commercial supporters. The presentation today will not include discussion of off-label product uses, with the exception of references to multiple breath washout, which is not currently FDA-approved for the age range and indication described. Dr. Davis, Infant and Preschool Lung Function Testing to Evaluate Early CF Lung Disease. Two of the review articles in the newsletter discussed it. I'd like you to expand on that now, if you would, and talk about the advantages and disadvantages of the techniques described in the articles. There are several advantages to infant and preschool lung function testing. First, I will begin by discussing advantages to infant lung function testing, specifically the raised volume technique. First, the raised volume technique simulates adult type spirometry, is reproducible, and flow limitation has certainly been demonstrated using this technique. In addition, the raised volume technique has been demonstrated to detect early disease in cystic fibrosis in a number of publications. Values that have been obtained from this technique have certainly been shown to improve after intravenous antibiotic therapy for an exacerbation. There is an FDA-approved device using the raised volume technique that is available in the United States. And finally, there are published guidelines describing how best to perform the raised volume technique as well as outlining what would be considered research quality data. In regard to preschool lung function testing, there are also several advantages. First, there are FDA-approved devices for performing preschool spirometry. There is also published guidelines on how to perform several different types of preschool lung function testing, including spirometry and multiple breath washout. These guidelines were recently published in 2007. Values from preschool spirometry have certainly been shown to detect early cystic fibrosis lung disease. And with preschool lung function testing, sedation is not required, and there are several published healthy control sets that are available. This is critical when differentiating disease from health. When asked about disadvantages of infant and preschool lung function testing, 
let's begin with infant lung function testing. The raised volume technique requires sedation and the equipment is quite expensive. In addition, it takes six months to one year to train personnel to perform the raised volume technique. There is also minimal control data available since sedation is required for this technique. When asked about disadvantages regarding preschool spirometry, one disadvantage is that on average, only 60% of preschoolers are able to perform acceptable spirometry. Certainly, this is lab-specific, but definitely a disadvantage. Preschool spirometry is best performed at a large medical center or pediatric-friendly, where there are pediatric-friendly staff, since it is difficult to often obtain acceptable spirometry, especially in the young three-year-old. Now, along those same lines, evaluating early CF lung disease through CT scans of the chest, and in particular, using a controlled breathing technique to obtain images in the young child. The advantages, disadvantages? There are several advantages to performing CT scanning. First, CT scans are in general more sensitive than chest radiographs at detecting early cystic fibrosis lung disease. In addition, CT scans have been shown to identify the presence of bronchial dilatation, bronchiectasis, mucus plugging, hyperinflation, and atelectasis in young children with cystic fibrosis. These same findings have been more difficult to see in chest radiographs, especially in the young child. CT scanning identifies disease early, therefore allowing one to follow progression, and certainly these early findings may lead to modification of clinical management noted on the CT scans. By modifying clinical management, this certainly may help to improve prognosis in the young child with cystic fibrosis. Another advantage of CT scanning is that it has the potential to be used as outcome measures for clinical trials, but further validation is needed in this area. When asked about the advantages of the controlled breathing technique, which is a technique that allows the infant's ventilation to be controlled non-invasively, one of the main advantages is that it eliminates motion artifact, which often can occur with normal respiration in the sedated infant. In addition, by minimizing motion artifact, it improves the quality of the interpretation of the chest CT findings. Well, let's move on to the disadvantages of chest CT scanning. Radiation risk is by far the largest disadvantage of CT scanning. We certainly have seen improvements in the decrease in the radiation dosing used for CT scanning in the young child with cystic fibrosis. However, this is still a disadvantage of scanning, therefore limiting the number of scans one can perform. Sedation or anesthesia is certainly needed for the preschool child. Standardization is also needed for quantifying and performing chest CT scanning in the preschool age child. An American Thoracic Society and European Respiratory Society International Committee are working on guidelines for standardization at this time. Further validation is also needed if CT scanning is to be used as an outcome measure in the preschool child. And finally, we are still defining its use as a clinical tool. Dr. Davis, I'd like to ask you about infant lung function laboratories. We know they exist at major medical centers, uh, but is it feasible to establish an infant lung function laboratory at less experienced sites? Uh, if so, uh, what are the challenges in establishing this type of laboratory? Let me answer the first question. Yes, it is feasible to establish an infant function laboratory at a less experienced site. I would say that this type of laboratory is typically established at a major medical center in order to have fully dedicated staff. The challenges in setting up an infant lung function laboratory are the following. First, the equipment is expensive. It does take a minimum of six months up to one year to have fully trained staff. 
two skilled staff are needed on the day of testing. The physician needs to be heavily involved in setting up the laboratory. A sedation policy must be established when performing infant lung function testing. And the staff should be skilled in conscious sedation monitoring as well as airway management. This is also a time-intensive test that may take up to two hours to perform. These are the main challenges in performing infant lung function testing. I would also like to add that interpreting infant lung function testing can also be challenging and certainly does take quite a bit of training when establishing this type of laboratory. Dr. Pittman, uh, as a fellow in training, what can you add from your perspective? As someone who arrived at UNC eager to learn the infant pulmonary function testing technique using the raised volume rapid thoracoabdominal compression method, but who had very little experience with the method, I fully agree with Dr. Davis's assessment that it takes a significant amount of time, but also dedication on the part of the clinician to really learn the technique well. I think the clinician needs to be prepared to be in the research lab for every study initially, at least for the first year probably, to really understand the inner workings of what's going on. Because in the end, if there's a problem with a study, it's going to be up to the clinician to decide where the problem occurred and how to correct it. I actually have the benefit of working not only with Dr. Davis and learning from her, but also learning from her really experienced respiratory therapist, which makes my job in terms of learning the technique much easier. So if I were setting up a lab on my own with a respiratory therapist who was as unexperienced in the technique as I was, I think, again, you just need to be prepared to dedicate a significant amount of time to preliminary reading, reading studies, and potentially even to traveling to other sites that are familiar with the technique in order to really get good practices from the beginning. And we'll return in just a moment with Dr. Stephanie Davis and Dr. Jessica Pittman from the Division of Pediatric Pulmonology at the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill. Hello, I'm Megan Ramsey, nurse practitioner and clinical coordinator for adults at the Johns Hopkins Cystic Fibrosis Program at the Johns Hopkins University School of Medicine. I am one of the program directors of eCystic Fibrosis Review. These podcast programs will be provided on a regular basis to enable you to receive additional current, concise, peer-reviewed information through podcasting, a medium that is gaining wide acceptance throughout the medical community. In fact, today, there are over 5,000 medical podcasts. To receive credit for this educational activity and to review Hopkins policies, please go to our website at www.ecysticfibrosisreview.org. This podcast is part of eCystic Fibrosis Review, a bi-monthly email-delivered program available by subscribing. Each issue reviews the current literature on focused topics important to clinicians caring for patients with cystic fibrosis. Continuing education credit for each newsletter and each podcast is provided by the Johns Hopkins University School of Medicine for Physicians, by the Institute for Johns Hopkins Nursing for Nurses, and by the Postgraduate Institute for Medicine for Pharmacists. Subscription to E-Cystic Fibrosis Review is provided without charge, and nearly a 1,000 of our colleagues have already become subscribers. The topic-focused literature reviews help them keep up-to-date on issues critical to maintaining the quality of care for their patients. For more information, to register to receive E-Cystic Fibrosis Review without charge and to access back issues, please go to www.ecysticfibrosisreview.org. 
Welcome back to our January 2009 E-Cystic Fibrosis Review Podcast. I'm Bob Busker, editor of E-Cystic Fibrosis Review, and I'm with Dr. Stephanie Davis and Jessica Pittman of the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill. We've been discussing measurement of early lung disease in children with cystic fibrosis. Dr. Pittman, the multiple breath washout technique. One of the articles reviewed in the newsletter evaluated this technique in preschoolers. Advantages, disadvantages in measuring lung clearance index? There are several advantages to the multiple breath washout technique. The first of which is that it requires no active cooperation, unlike spirometry, and just needs quiet tidal breathing in order to be performed. This makes it ideal to be used in preschoolers and infants. Secondly, uh, multiple breath washout requires no sedation, unlike infant pulmonary function testing using the raised volume technique, though it has been used in sedated infants, particularly those who were already sedated for research studies involving infant pulmonary function testing. The lung clearance index, as measured by the multiple breath washout technique, may be more sensitive to early peripheral airways disease than conventional spirometry. And lung clearance index measures can be performed from infancy through adulthood, making the results easily translatable for longitudinal research. Lastly, the multiple breath washout technique is widely used in Europe on a research basis, though it has not been adopted into routine clinical practice yet. There are some disadvantages to the multiple breath washout technique, the first of which is that there is no FDA-approved device for the purpose of multiple breath washout in infancy available in the U.S. Also, because there's little longitudinal data available, the significance of elevated lung clearance index values is unclear, particularly in young children. Multiple breath washout is not yet ready for clinical use in the U.S. or in Europe, and further validation studies are needed to look at multiple breath washout as a clinical outcome measure and to assess the response of the lung clearance index measure to therapeutic agents. i change the topic now, Dr. Pittman, about Pseudomonas aeruginosa. One of the studies reviewed in the newsletter focused on the association between Pseudomonas infection and decline in lung function, and in particular noted a lack of significant difference between those who cleared Pseudomonas and those who did not. Uh, could you give us some further explanation, please? Several studies, including the Kozlowska study, have shown pseudomonas being linked to lower pulmonary function or more rapid rate of decline in lung function in subjects with CF. However, because most of these studies were epidemiologic studies, pseudomonas, though it may be a cause of decline, has not been shown definitely to be the sole cause of decline in these subjects. It's likely that other factors, including genetic modifiers, environmental, inflammatory, and nutritional factors, play a role in determining the severity of lung function in children with CF. These factors may also play a role in the likelihood of a particular patient to acquire pseudomonas and the effect pseudomonas has on the lungs once infection has been established. Given the widespread use of newborn screening in Europe and the U.S., as well as the resurgence of the multiple breath washout technique and the expanded use of infant and preschool pulmonary function testing, now is an ideal time to investigate the association between pseudomonas and lung disease severity in CF as part of a longitudinal study. I'd like us to go now to an overview perspective and talk about the recent advances in the physiologic and structural assessment of early CF lung disease. Uh, These were certainly highlighted in the newsletter reviews. Uh, Dr. Davis, how might we expect these developments to affect both clinical care and clinical research? So let's begin by discussing how these developments will affect clinical care. First, the finding of early cystic fibrosis lung disease through physiologic measures such as infant lung function testing and structural anomalies noted on chest CT scanning may lead to more aggressive clinical management. The CF clinician, knowing that lung disease begins early, may then try to reverse disease during infancy. In addition, we are seeing tools, especially infant lung function testing, 
being implemented more into clinical practice. In fact, a recent consensus group was established through the Cystic Fibrosis Foundation to address the care of cystic fibrosis infants diagnosed through newborn screening. This consensus group is considering infant pulmonary function tests as an adjunct tool to monitor respiratory status in order to assess presence or progression of lung disease. This same group is recommending that CT scanning be considered in infants with symptoms or signs of lung disease who fail to respond to basic interventions. Both CT scanning, infant, and preschool lung function testing have the potential to be outcome measures for clinical trials. However, further research in this area is needed. So this really brings me to how the developments affect research. Over the last 10 years, we have seen quite a bit of progress in using both of these tools in research. In fact, there is now a multi-center network that has been established for both infant and preschool lung function testing. This network was established due to standardization of these techniques as well as a strong commitment amongst the sites in performing both preschool and infant lung function testing. There has also been a core lab established at the University of North Carolina in helping to establish this multi-center network. And this has really been made possible through the dedication of the Cystic Fibrosis Foundation and the Therapeutic Development Network. In addition, CT scanning has the potential to be used as an outcome measure. However, standardization is really needed in the preschooler before this can be used in a more multi-center setting. This standardization is currently being established through the American Thoracic Society and European Respiratory Society Committee. This committee is writing guidelines on how to perform CT scanning in the young child with cystic fibrosis. Finally, it is important that we define the variability of both CT scanning measures and infant pulmonary function testing between time periods used for clinical trials. This variability is critical as we see new therapeutics headed down the pipeline towards infancy and preschoolers. This is an exciting time in cystic fibrosis because we do now have objective tools that have the potential to be used in clinical trials in the young child with cystic fibrosis. I'd like to follow up and ask you for a specific example of how infant lung function testing can be used clinically. Let's begin with how infant lung function testing may be used clinically. I'm going to begin by discussing a specific case of a two-year-old child with cystic fibrosis who was admitted with increased cough. On exam, this child's chest was clear. There were no crackles. The oximetry values were normal at 98% on room air. And the chest radiograph basically showed increased parabronchial thickening with mild hyperinflation. So our question was, does this child have airway obstruction and how severe is this airway obstruction? We performed infant lung function testing and demonstrated that he did have significant airway obstruction. In fact, his forced expiratory volume at 0.5 seconds was 68% predicted and his forced expiratory flows between 25 and 75% or FEF 2575 was 27% predicted. Certainly, these values indicated significant obstruction. Due to these findings, he was initiated on two weeks of intravenous antibiotic therapy directed against the organisms that we knew this child had grown in the past. However, his mom reported some improvement in cough, but was really unsure of how improved he was clinically. So our next question was, is airflow limitation still present? And if so, is the severity of obstruction the same or improved? 
since he was admitted to the hospital for intravenous antibiotic therapy. We then repeated lung function testing and showed significant improvement after two weeks of IV antibiotic therapy with near normal values at this point. So in this case, we used infant lung function testing to help direct the length of intravenous antibiotic therapy in this child with cystic fibrosis. This would be a nice example of how infant lung function testing can be used clinically. And what about using infant lung function testing as a research tool? I can speak to a future trial that will be beginning in 2009. In this trial, we are evaluating the use of 7% hypertonic saline as a chronic therapy in the young child with cystic fibrosis. We plan to perform infant lung function testing at the beginning of this trial and one year later at the end of this trial to see if, in fact, there is a difference in infant lung function values in the group of children who receive 7% hypertonic saline versus the group of children who receive the control agent. And in this case, this control agent will be isotonic saline. This specific trial, which is called ISIS, will help to better define the use of infant lung function testing as a clinical outcome measure. The use of infant lung function testing as an exploratory outcome measure in this upcoming trial of 7% hypertonic saline will serve as a future model for new therapeutics that are used in the young child in the future. One final question, Dr. Davis. The potential reversibility of structural abnormalities noted on CT scan in the young child with cystic fibrosis. Would you give us some further comment, please? When asked about the utility of CT scanning in assessing the reversibility of structural abnormalities noted in the young child with cystic fibrosis, I would like to discuss further one of the articles that was actually done here at UNC. In this article, we demonstrated that bronchial dilatation or bronchiectasis scores improved after intravenous antibiotic therapy for an exacerbation. In addition, we saw significant improvement in hyperinflation after intravenous antibiotic therapy. This improvement was quite encouraging because it showed that early intervention may in fact lead to reversibility of early CF lung disease. It also emphasizes the importance of being aggressive at a young age because in fact this may improve prognosis long term. One other thing I would like to say about CT scanning. When we did our study here, we were surprised at the extent of bronchiectasis that was noted in these very young children with cystic fibrosis. In fact, many of these children had no clinical signs of significant disease, and certainly their chest radiographs did not show disease. This emphasizes how difficult it is to interpret clinical findings in the young child with cystic fibrosis. Often, their clinical manifestations are silent. There may be no history of cough and certainly no findings on chest exam. Therefore, one may think the child is doing well, However, these objective measures, such as CT scanning, in fact have shown that these children develop bronchiectasis, bronchial dilatation, hyperinflation, mucus plugging at a very young age. Dr. Stephanie Davis, Dr. Jessica Pittman from the Division of Pediatric Pulmonology at the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill, thank you both for participating in this e-cystic fibrosis review podcast. Thank you for inviting me. This has been quite a lot of fun. Thank you for having us both. This podcast is presented in conjunction with E-Cystic Fibrosis Review, a peer-reviewed CME, 
CNE, and CPE-accredited literature review emailed monthly to clinicians treating patients with cystic fibrosis. Please visit our website, www.ecysticfibrosisreview.org, to register for the program. This activity has been planned and implemented in accordance with the essential areas and policies of the Accreditation Council for Continuing Medical Education through the joint sponsorship of the Johns Hopkins University School of Medicine, the Institute for Johns Hopkins Nursing, and the Postgraduate Institute for Medicine. The Johns Hopkins University School of Medicine is accredited by the Accreditation Council for Continuing Medical Education to provide continuing medical education to physicians. For physicians, the Johns Hopkins University School of Medicine designates this educational activity for a maximum of 0.5 AMA PRA Category 1 credits. Physicians should only claim credit commensurate with the extent of their participation in the activity. For nurses, this 0.5-hour educational activity is provided by the Institute for Johns Hopkins Nursing. Each podcast carries a maximum of 0.5 contact hours. For pharmacists, this program is approved for 0.5-hour credit or 0.05 CEUs, awarded by the Postgraduate Institute for Medicine. This educational resource is provided without charge, but registration is required. To register to receive eCystic Fibrosis Review via email, please go to our website, www.ecysticfibrosisreview.org. The opinions and recommendations expressed by faculty and other experts whose input is included in this program are their own. This enduring material is produced for educational purposes only. Use of the Johns Hopkins University School of Medicine name implies review of educational format, design, and approach. Please review the complete prescribing information of specific drugs, combination of drugs, or use of medical equipment, including indications, contraindications, warnings, and adverse effects before administering therapy to patients. Thank you for listening. E-Cystic Fibrosis Review is supported by an educational grant from Genentech, Salve Pharmaceuticals, and Novartis Pharmaceuticals. This program is copyrighted with all rights reserved by the Johns Hopkins University School of Medicine.